Would you do it if the opportunity presented itself? Like if someone said, hey, here's some goat milk. Do you want to churn it? <laughs> or or somebody said, hey, like my buddy has a goat farm and they really this have- This is like the a, weirdest like- conversation <laughs> I've ever walked into. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Protagonist. I'm Todd Mack here with Joseph Dorowski, and each week we look at a great character and a great story. Today we're talking about Nobody Owens from The Graveyard Book, a novel written by Neil Gaiman. This novel was published in 2008, and it won the Newbery Medal, the Hugo Award, the Locus Award, and the Carnegie Medal. It is the only book to have ever won both the Newbery Medal and the Carnegie Medal, which are awards for Best Fiction for Children, but the Newbery is the American Award, and the Carnegie is the British Award. Uh, the title of the book is a play on The Jungle Book, about an orphaned child who is raised by animals in the jungle. Spoiler warning, The Graveyard Book is about an orphan child raised by ghosts in a graveyard. So, uh, Joseph, how did you come to this work? I am a fan of uh, Neil Gaiman's writing. He kind of rose to prominence in the comic book industry, which listeners may know I am fond of comic books. And so I've, and I've always enjoyed his style. So when this one was being announced, I, I was aware of it. It got talked a lot, uh, uh, talked about a lot on some comic book websites that are frequent. And so I, I ordered it right when it first came out, and I thought it was delightful. And uh, I read this because you recommended it to me, and I read it uh, today. I read about I read about thirty pages two days ago, and I read the rest of it this afternoon. So <laughs> it's a, uh, it's fresh. Here's a peek behind the curtain. This was going to be the f- the second book we talked about, so it was going to follow our discussion of uh, the Hobbit. But we inserted the House on Mango Street, and we've done a couple of special episodes. So I actually read this a couple months ago, so it is not quite <laughs> as fresh for me. Uh, but I guess I. I'd read it before. I think I listened to the book on tape once, and then I reread it in January. Uh, so I, I, I think I can handle it. Handle a discussion of this one. <laughs> I'm sure you'll be fine. I hope that your I hope that your memory of things is better than mine because I I've talked about my Easter egg memory in this podcast before. <laughs> like I just like I can hide my own Easter eggs because I can't remember where I put them. So um, I have a hard time remembering plots of things uh, more than like a couple days after <laughs> after I've read them. Um, but I really enjoyed this book. I have read, um, uh, this is not the first Neil Gaiman work that I've read. I read, uh, Stardust. I think that was the first Neil Gaiman book that I read. Um, and I enjoyed Stardust. And then I read Sandman and I thought, I don't know if I'm old enough to be reading, (laughs) reading Sandman. (laughs) (laughs) And then I tried to read American Gods and I was like, I know that I am not old enough to read American (laughs) Gods. (laughs) So, and, and, uh, Gaiman talks about actually in his Newbery speech, like, um, his surprise at winning the Newbery award for this book, um, because, uh, I don't think he, he was before this known for, well, he'd re- he'd written Coraline, which is also a children's book, but his children's stories are kind of creepy. And, uh, <laughs> have you ever read his picture book, the wolves and the walls? No. It's about a family that's driven out of their home by the wolves that lives in the walls in their house. Oh my gosh. <laughs> he really does have kind of a dark imagination, but my goodness, this book is beautiful. And uh, if I was the kind of person that cries reading, um, then I definitely would have cried reading this novel because it is, it is like really beautiful. And Neil Gaiman, for as dark as his stuff can be sometimes, um, I think that he has that gift of um the kind of understanding the human condition 
that not all writers have. And he has a way of not only crafting a story with a plot that is really uh, fantastic, but the prose pops off of the page, the way he writes, uh, the way he forms his sentences. There's kind of a lyricism to it that, uh, for me, it, it pulls me in and I, it, like, I never want to stop reading it. Yeah, it's not nearly as sort of overtly poetic as like House on Mango Street that we read before, uh, but it, it, he definitely has um, uh, absolute command over the language and plays with it in really great ways. So yeah, yeah, he'll pace his sentences in a way that's always interesting. Where you'll have like several sh- short sentences followed by this really long, intricate one, uh, uh-huh. and, and it kind of keep, keeps your interest. You don't get lulled into any um, kind of the, the eye drooping that happens to me occasionally when I'm reading some other authors. It feels very um, deliberate. Like the prose, I mean, it feels, how do I say this? Uh, it feels natural, and but when you look at it, you know that um, that every word is there for a reason and that every sentence has been thought out. Yeah, and you, you like can uh, you can appreciate the craft. You can tell that he's putting in uh, yes. a decision on, on every every word and every sentence. Yeah. There's a, there's a, there, I was, um, uh, let's see if I can say this without spoiling anything right now, because we're still in spoiler-free zone. Uh, <laughs> at the end of the book, um, there's, something happens, and, uh, the plot is heading in a direction, and as a reader, you sort of think you kind of know where it's heading, and, um, and he, he does this great thing where he ends one sentence and begins the next sentence, and in those, uh, in in the end of one sentence, the beginning of the next is the big reveal. Um, but he does it with the way that he structures the sentences, which I thought was really cool. All right, so well, we, we can talk about that later. Yeah, maybe we should jump into the spoiler. <laughs> spoiler do you want to give a quick synopsis for anyone who hasn't read this yet? Uh, yeah, and then so I will do the more uh, spoilery one. Yes, we'll see if you can beat eighteen minutes, which was <laughs> my synopsis from from the Quiet Man. Um, uh, so this is a book about, uh, the, the first chapter, uh, is a murder. There's a, a man named Jack and the man Jack uh, goes into these people's house and murders everybody, but except for the baby who sort of innocently, um, kind of toddles out of the house while he's murdering, while this, the man Jack is murdering the rest of his family. And classic he children's into, book opening. A classic children's book opening. <laughs> And uh, he toddles into a graveyard. Um, the man Jack is uh, going to track the baby down to finish the job. And the ghosts in the graveyard decide that they are not going to let the man Jack uh, kill the baby, but they're going to adopt him. And so this little boy grows up in the graveyard, uh, raised by ghosts. And, um, and each chapter in the book is a sort of uh, kind of a... A short story, um, but all of the short stories are together are tied together in in a longer like complete narrative. So it is both a collection of really great short stories, but also a complete um, like well developed arc. So it's a it's a fantastic book, one of the best children's books that I've read in a really really long time. It's a very 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 good book. So I highly recommend it. If that sounds interesting to you. Uh, check out our show notes. We'll have a link uh, to Amazon. You can purchase it, um, or you can go to your local library and check it out. And uh, there is an audiobook that is read by Neil Gaiman, who is British and has a wonderfully 
kind of dry tone as he reads through it. And you, you may enjoy that. We'll have a link for that one as well. And if you order it through our show notes, we'll get a little kickback to help fund this little endeavor, this little podcast. Why don't you remind our listeners where they can find our show notes? Thank you. That's our producer, Andrew, giving us an important producery note. All of our show notes uh, included for this episode can be found at protagonistpodcast.com. And there you can find all of our previous episodes and uh, the, the notes for where you can find and locate the different media that we're, we're talking about. And there's also an opportunity there for you to become a sponsor for the podcast to help us keep going on this little adventure. Okay. Okay. So do you want to jump into the... Uh the full the full synopsis yeah just real quick i wanted to say that um this obviously it won award for uh, awards for children's literature but you may have caught from todd's short version of what happens in this that uh, it's not your typical children's book uh i think neil gaiman subscribes to the theory that uh children need to be a little bit scared uh, at times that we've (laughs) we've maybe over sanitized our entertainment for children obviously if you go back and you read some earlier children's stories from different eras you you realize that a lot of them are kind of creepy and <laughs> in a lot of ways. And I think he feels that we've made the world a little too safe for children. And he just wants to introduce a little bit uh, more, uh, I guess, <laughs> excitement into their lives with these kinds of stories. <laughs> uh, but even though it does open with a murder, it's not gruesome, I guess I would say. It's it's not. No, it's not. It's not gruesome. Yeah. So I, I, you would be fine reading it to a child particularly any child that's like into anything like Harry Potter, this would be right in their wheelhouse. All right, so here's a little more in-depth synopsis. I'm going to try and keep this under the 18-minute mark. That was our record length so far. Uh, this is a classic Buildings Roman novel. Uh, Buildings Roman is a coming-of-age novel. Uh, so we, we track this child, uh, this, this toddler, through his life. And as Todd had said, the first chapter involves his family being killed, but him being adopted into the graveyard. Um, and being given the name Nobody Owens because they don't know what his name was. And the the ghost couple who's going to be most responsible for him, their last name is the Owens, and I believe it is Mrs. Owens who says he don't look like nobody but himself, and so they name him <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> and uh, though his name is Nobody, he usually goes by Bod. Uh, in the graveyard, there are ghosts from all different uh, time periods. Uh, it, it was a long-used graveyard. There's also living there a vampire uh, or it's never explicitly said vampire, but we know he's a vampire named Silas who will go out of the graveyard and gather materials for, uh, for Bod. When Neil Gaiman was on the Colbert report talking about this, he described him as a vampire. He okay. said, there's a vampire there who helps take care of him. All right. Priest Andrew popping in with an important note in the, in the text. It never actually says the word vampire. <laughs> it's just like, it'll, it'll never say werewolf. Uh, there's a werewolf that goes by the hounds of God later on. She's a hound uh, of God. Yes. Um, and we kind of, as Todd said, each chapter is kind of self-contained. So we have that chapter where he's a toddler. He goes into the graveyard. He gets adopted. The next chapter, he's about five years old, and he meets a friend named Scarlet as um, a child of the graveyard. He's been given the freedom of the graveyard, which means he can do some things like passing through solid objects. He can turn himself invisible. Uh, but he is still a human child. He's not a ghost. Uh, and his relationship with Scarlet is such that his, her parents think that she has just made an invisible friend because she's about five years old, too. Um, and, uh, there is an incident in which he goes into a place called the Barrow, which is like the deepest, uh, part of the graveyard. It is an ancient burial, burial spot that the other ghost won't go into. And it scares, uh, Scarlet very badly. And she runs out and her family thinks she must've been taken by someone for the, cause she was missing while they went into the Barrow. And so Scarlet and her family move away. So Bod has lost his only human friend. 
The next chapter is when he's about eight-ish. Um, and in this one, you meet Miss Lupescu, who, as the name, any name that includes, you know, Loop somewhere in there, it's going to be a werewolf. We know this from Professor Lupin uh, <laughs> in Harry Potter, and it's being done here again. She is going to watch over uh, Bod while Silas is away, um, and she's going to help the ghost to care for him and help him in his education. All of the ghosts um, are kind of teaching him, but he's being taught, uh, you know, in styles from different eras of history. So he's, he's getting kind of an interesting education. And while he's uh, being watched by Miss Lupescu, he gets abducted by some... Are they goblins or ghouls? I'm forgetting right ghouls. now. Ghouls. Ghouls. They're ghouls, yeah. The, the ghouls are weird. <laughs> the ghouls are really... Ghouls are uh, weird like psycho ghosts. Yes. I mean, they're, uh, the like, they're like monst- monster, monster ghosts. The bad yes. ghosts. And they take him down into the world of the ghouls. Um, there, it says that I think every graveyard has one neglected ga- uh, gravestone that is covered with moss that you can't read the name on, and that's the Ghoul Gate. And yes. he's taken through the Ghoul Gate into the world of the ghouls. But Miss Lupescu, uh, who he had always been annoyed by and not had a good relationship, she comes through and rescues him, and he gains a new respect for her. I and- loved that story, by the way. Yes. Uh, you learn a lot about Bod. I think it's an important moment for Bod. Um, and then uh, the next chapter, there is a uh, an accused witch ghost uh, in in the an unmarked grave in the graveyard, and he becomes friends with her. She's like 15 or 16, and at this point, he's probably like 11 or 12, maybe. And she tells him that she just wishes she had a headstone. It's never clear if she really was a witch or she was just, this was a moment of hysteria, uh, you know, when they were hunting for witches and she was accused of being a witch. Well, she actually, she cursed, she curses the people that kill her. And right. then but when it's not the, clear if killing he really her, had, if she really had any powers or if, you know. Well, it seems I, pretty clear. I mean, she says all of you people are going to die. And then a plague comes into the town and kills every single person that she had cursed, but nobody else. Mm. okay and so then he says he says so were you a witch before they killed you for being a witch and she goes i don't really know <laughs> so maybe there's the ambiguity but i am now <laughs> um and he goes on an adventure out of the graveyard he wants to go and try and buy a gravestone for her and um he does this by going back into the barrow where you know the ancient burial spot and stealing an object from in there that he imagines will be valuable to people outside the graveyard but he doesn't really understand the world outside of the graveyard and he goes to a pawn shop to try and sell it and the person wants to steal it from him uh and there's this you know a little adventure where uh liza Hem- is it hemstock the the ghost of the witch yeah I comes and helps him a little bit to escape again after he'd been locked up and uh in the end he makes his way back and all he, he did uh get a uh glass uh paperweight that he writes her initials on and and lays uh where she had wanted a headstone to be two really important things happen during that story uh, one is that she puts a curse on him this is another reason why she we i believe that she actually is a witch because she puts a curse on him that allows him to finally be able to fade, which is to turn himself invisible, like ghosts can, which he's been trying to do. The ghosts have been trying to teach him, and he's been unable to pull it off. And she finally does you know, some hand-waviness and says some magic words, and then he now he can um, 
fade, which becomes an important skill for him. And also, um, the, the shop owner ha- has some relationship with the man Jack and is able to tip off the man Jack that there's, that there's a boy that may be the, the baby that he was supposed to kill. Right. The man Jack is still hunting for the child that he lost. Right. Uh, but this is the catalyst for the man Jack coming back because he's been all over the world looking for this baby and now he comes back to the town. And then there's a, uh, a chapter called The Dance Macabre or Macabre or Macabre, depending on how you want to pronounce Macabre. that word, <laughs> um, which is – it's a really fascinating short story. It I doesn't it. have so much about the development of Bob, but it kind of gives you a window into the world of the ghosts and how they interact with the living, where the town has – um, once, however, you know, every long number of years, um, these flowers bloom in the graveyard and there's a tradition that they don't really, under- no one really remembers where it came from, but they, they cut the flowers and they give it to everyone in the city. And then at night, uh, everyone who has one of these flowers kind of falls into a trance and all the ghosts from the graveyards come out and they all dance with the living. And there's this, um, lady on a, is it a gray horse lady? In- yep. A lady on a gray horse who seems to be the angel of death comes and um, it's this kind of blending of the worlds of the dead and the living for one night. And then in the morning, the living people don't remember it anymore and the ghost won't speak of it at all. And Bob, because he's in this kind of space between, he remembers it and wants to talk about it with everyone, but no one will talk to him about it. It's so beautiful. I, I, it, um, it's like hauntingly beautiful. It's just, yeah. Haunting is a real, is the perfect word to describe it. I think. Yeah, but not, but not haunting like scary. Just, um, just haunting like it it haunts you. <laughs> yeah, so, it's so, and that's how this book is. It's like it's dark, but it's not scary, and and it's haunting, but it's not creepy. Right, I think. And then I think we get um, a snippet away from the graveyard as we see. Isn't it a convention of all the the men Jack in the world? All of the men Jack in the world, yes. And they're, they're kind of they're chewing a secret, out a long, long, old secret society of men called Jack. And we find out that they had some ancient prophecy. Prophecies like this always get the people in trouble about <laughs> uh, the child that would bring their order down, and so that's why the man Jack was sent to kill that family in the first place. And he's getting a rough time from everyone else because he's never found the the child that he was supposed to kill. That was the whole point of him going there. Poor Jack. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, and then the the next chapter is another adventure for him outside of the graveyard. Uh, Silas decides that he needs to become more informed about the world. And, and he's definitely more curious. At the, I want to say he's like 12 or so at this point. They enroll him in a school, a public school. And they, I mean, there's little explanations as to how this is done when he's, you know, a child with no parents. He's been instructed to not draw attention to himself. He's supposed to kind of do the fade, you know, just, just be there and have some mild social interactions, but not really become someone that anyone would remember. Right. It's Jack is, or, uh, sorry, Bod is the one who wants to go to school because he finds out that there is a man, Jack, in the world who, that his parents, that, that his family had been murdered. And he says, then I'm going to go into the world. I'm going to learn everything there is to know about the world so that I'll be ready when this guy comes back for me. Um, and so then Silas sort of reluctantly sends him to school uh, with strict instructions that he is to always keep himself sort of half-faded. So, like, he's in school, but nobody really notices him. His teachers always forget about him. He doesn't show up on any lists. He just kind of hangs out there. 
And you, there's a couple of moments I really enjoy where, like, in, in history class, he has more accurate information than <laughs> the textbooks because he's talked to people who were alive at those times. Uh, but all of his his comments, which, uh, you know, appear in his homework, are dismissed as, like, how would how would anyone know that? <laughs> you know, kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he, he um, gets involved in helping a, to stop two bullies who are uh, definitely picking on and, and kind of ruining the lives of several of their classmates. And Bod kind of can't help himself. Uh, from becoming the center of their attention as he is trying to stop them. And he does stop them. And he, he causes uh, some level of reform. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> or, or at least consequences for their actions, which had, had no consequences before. Um, right. But because he's done this, he is pulled from the school because too many people will be looking for him and, and trying to find him because he's become a center of attention. So it, he was there for, for a few months and he's out. And he's those poor kids, man. So, so in this chapter, we learn a little bit more about Bod's powers. He can fade. Uh, he can also create a spirit of fear in people. So he can do something, and all of a sudden, the room is everybody in the room is just filled with like dread. Um, right. And he can also dreamwalk. So he can, he can go he to can visit dreams. people in people's in their dreams, and. Uh, so between a combination of being able to turn himself invisible, being able to fill anybody uh, uh, that he wants to with just like uh, horrible fear and being able to, to step into their dreams and do the same thing, um, he makes the life kind of pretty horrible for these these bullies. At this well, and doesn't he give one of them a uh, like a suggestion that anytime they think about being mean, they're going to be... They, they're gonna they're gonna have horrible thoughts in their head, so they'll I stop thinking. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty. <laughs> but we get to see Bod sort of acting <laughs> acting as a ghost. I mean, he really is. There there are times in the novel where he is. Um, I mean, we see him getting. We see him as the novel progresses, becoming more and more human and less and less ghost. But at this stage in the in the novel, he's very much ghost. Uh, after this, we jump ahead a few more years um, in, into more of his, his early teen years. And as you said, he's kind of becoming less ghost-like. Uh, Scarlet and her mom have been back. Scarlet's parents have been divorced. And the this kind of builds towards the conclusion as the um, society of, of the men, Jack, are panicking as they're, they're being picked apart all over the world and they don't know why and they're desperate to find Bod and stop him. Uh, and in this story, though, uh, Scarlet befriends Bod again. They, they meet up again and she she remembers that she kind of had this invisible friend and maybe it wasn't. <laughs> you know, maybe he wasn't an invisible friend. Maybe he was real. And uh, she wants to help him figure out things. Like, um, she's kind of horrified to discover that his family was murdered because um, he, he tells her, you know, what's going on in his life. He actually reveals some of himself to her. And so she wants to find out, um, more about this. And meanwhile, um, uh, Mr. Frost has been befriending Scarlett and her mom kind of, a, a tentative courtship with, with Scarlett's mom. And he's uh, a local historian. So he's always hanging around the graveyard, doing rubbings of the gravestones and trying to find out who these people were that were there. And, Scarlet thinks, oh, well, he's a local historian. Maybe he can help me find out about Bod. So she takes Bod to meet him. And this is when you find out that Mr. Frost is really Jack Frost. He is the man Jack. And once he has Bod, he tries to, to kill him. And Bod and Scarlet run back towards the graveyard with uh, the man Jack following him. There were a couple other men Jack there to try and help clean things up. And This is the, part, go- this is the part that I was talking about when – so this man's name is Frost. And – um, I, even me, who I am like the worst 
at picking up on these kinds of things, I'm like, hmm, Frost. I bet it's Jack Frost, right? And uh, and when he introduces himself to Scarlet's mom, he says his name is J, like J A Y or G J E Y J Frost. I'm like, okay, this is totally Mr. Frost. Um, and then it's totally creepy. Um, oh, what was I? It was the transformation from because when he's being the local historian, he's kind of a doddering older man, older gentleman. Uh, yeah, but you still and then there's know. This, like, there's I this think... transformation though when he's well, like the the description of his transformation when he's like becoming the man Jack again. Uh, right, and so the the part that the 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 part where I was talking about the sentence structure, it's he calls him Mr. Frost, Mr. Frost, Mr. Frost, Mr. Frost, and then there's a sentence that ends Mr. Frost, and then the next sentence starts the man Jack, and then you realize oh this is Jack Frost, and um and it's cool. Uh, I was I was what was I what was I watching or reading or listening to? Somebody was talking about suspense, and that um true suspense. It comes when oh, was something about Hitchcock. Have we talked about Hitchcock? We have not talked about Hitchcock on the podcast. You and I have had a conversation about Hitchcock. <laughs> it was some Hitchcock thing. I must have been doing it for school. But um, uh, they were talking about suspense, and that suspense is uh, we think uh, the, sort of the layman's version of suspense is that suspense is when we don't know what's going to happen, and we're worried that something bad might happen. But the true masters of suspense, they just tell you at the very beginning what is going to happen, and then you the the suspense builds as you um, are sort of suffering vicariously through other characters in the novel. Oh, I know what it was. It was another podcast. It was the Incomparable podcast. They were talking about um, Rope, the Hitchcock film Rope. I love that film uh, so much. Where um, there's a dead body inside of a chest, inside of a room, and you know, as the viewer, you know that the dead body's in there, and the suspense comes from like just dying inside, uh, expecting for one of the people in the room to open the trunk and find the dead body. And there are um, some fabulously and, staged scenes in that film where you right. Just it's, a, it's a really, really, really famous film, and uh, and. So I I think that Gaiman is doing the same thing here, where as soon as he introduces Frost, um, most readers, or I think many readers, are going to know, oh my gosh, that's the man Jack. Yeah, Jack no, Frost. don't go home with him, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, when no, you met- don't go, don't get in his car. Don't take him to visit your mother. Don't take Bod to his house. And you just this this feeling of dread that comes inside of you, not because you don't know what's going to happen, because you know that he is the bad guy. Uh, but because you're sort of you're sort of experiencing this kind of vicarious feeling through the characters, yeah. Particularly because when there was that meeting of all the Jacks, you found out. I mean, Jack is one of the most common names in all of story, um, and you find out that every one of the men Jack is like a, you know, their last name is a Jack. You know, besides Jack Frost. Um, so. I'm tr- I'm trying to find real quick here <laughs> some of the examples. Jack Nimble. Yes, there's Jack Nimble. I think there's Jack Dandy. Um, Jack Kerouac. Jack. No, I don't think he's one of them. <laughs> Jack Bauer. Yes. No. <laughs> um, but but so you're you're aware that this organization of I think they're called the Jacks of All Trades. Is that what they're called? Yes, uh, the Jacks of All Trades. That each of them has a, a, the first name Jack, but then the last name is uh, something you'd be familiar with that would resonate. And so Frost, obviously Jack Frost, um, is a character that we we would recognize uh, in this big finale. Um, Bod um, returns with uh, the Jack Frost chasing him to to the graveyard, 
and he um, guides him deliberately back into the barrow. And in the earlier encounter in the barrow, the one that had scared Scarlet so badly, there was this ancient force there. We don't ever get it really explained what it is. You just know that it was set up there as a protector and it's waiting for its master to come back. It's called the Sleer and it's creepy. Uh, and, and it's, it's waiting for its master to come. It, it always tells, uh, Bob whenever he goes back into the barrow that it's protecting everything in there for its master and it knows its master will return. And when Bob goes back with, um, Jack, he, he knows or he anticipates that the Sleer will be asking again for its master and it, knowing what he does about the man Jack, when when he leads him down there, the Slayer say, "Will you be our master?" And the man Jack's like, "Yeah, of course." And the Slayer are very excited, like, "We will protect you forever." And they it wraps him up, and you get the sense that he's being killed in the barrow, where they're going to keep his bones forever uh, to protect yeah. him. Whatever the Slayer is, some sort of mystical it's a smoke monster. It's a three headed <laughs> snake. It's a three headed <laughs> snake, and the three faces are human faces. In the yeah. illust- in the illustrated version that I do, you have a picture of the Slee in your this, yeah. This there is the Sleer. and the there's Sleer. also a graphic novel version. And I wanted like some of these moments, I wanted to get the graphic novel version to, oh, to see yeah. how the illustrator would have tackled it. Um, and so that's how he evades the man Jack. And uh, then there's kind of this this coda at the end where you find out that Silas and Miss Lupescu, who is a hound of God, and some others like a mummy. <laughs> And a couple other characters have been going around and just destroying the the jacks of all trades all over the world. Dis- um, and everyone... Dispatching them, right? Yes. I think it's like, <laughs> sort of one by yeah. one. Yes, they've, they've killed them all, and the last ones were those that were there that night. And a few, one of them had gotten taken down in the ghoul gate. Uh, a couple others have been tricked by by uh, Bod in the, in the graveyard, and then the Jack Frost was taken down into the barrow and killed by the Slayer. So... Um, Bod is no longer in danger um, as he's grown up at this, in this coda. He's probably, is he 15? I think 15 or 16. I think he's uh, 16. Silas is kind of saying it's time for you to leave the graveyard. He can't do the ghosting things that he's been doing naturally his whole life. Like he tries to go stick his head into the the, the grave where his parents are, Mr. and Mrs. Owens, and he can't pass through the ground anymore. Uh, and he, Silas provides him with a, uh, passport and some money and the passport says nobody Owens and he's kind of sent off into the world and Scarlet, his friend, uh, Silas somehow removed her memories of that night. He says she will not be able to function if she remembers yeah. everything that she, that she's seen and Bod kind of argues against it, but Silas, Silas does it anyway, takes away her memories of the night. And so it's unclear if Bod is going to go seek her out or, or what their future will be. But then he, he now is, uh, going to go and, uh, try to integrate into the world in some way. And Silas gives him some great bits of advice. Uh, there's so many great lines in this, but, um, one thing that Silas says to Bod is, um, near the end, I don't think it's in the very coda, but, um, Bod is kind of saying, you know, I don't mind hanging out with dead people. <laughs> I don't mind hanging out with you. Uh, it might be cool to be like you. And, and Silas is very adamant that he does not want to be like him. <laughs> he doesn't want to be a vampire. And Silas says, you're alive, Bod. That means you have infinite potential. You can do anything, make anything, dream anything. If you change the world, the world will change. Um, implying that as a, as a vampire is an undead, he, he doesn't have that, you know, he can't change himself and he can't really change the world. Um, he, he's in this, this limbo, uh, and obviously the dead don't have the influence they once would have. So he, he, Silas is really saying, you've got to go live your life. And now's the time that we've, we've taken care of this threat that was going to be trying to end your life. And that is the graveyard book. I have no idea how long that took. About 23. 
Oh, that was a while, some, but I we got had, I we had some tangents. We had some tangents in there. <laughs> That's good. They were good tangents. What are your favorite moments in this book? Well, I'll tell you what some of my favorite moments are. I'll okay. give you a breather. Okay. I love the dance macabre. I thought it was just like, well, like I said before, it's just haunting and beautiful and um, felt like... Um, felt like the best moments of a great Tim Burton film. <laughs> you know, like where... When he's really um, on his game. When he's really on. Like 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 some of the scenes in Edward Scissorhands that are just sort of beautiful and... Or um, the uh, Big Fish has some or of Or Big my Fish, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I really loved Silas and uh, Miss Lupescu. Um, it's... Uh, and I and I really like uh, Bod's arc, and I love um, in in the Newberry speech. Uh, Gaiman says that when he finished this book, he realized that. So he had set out to write a book about children, and he says, "I finished writing a book about parents." And this the final scene when Bod says goodbye to his ghost mother, this old ghost lady who never had children of her own, and she's taking care of him all this time, and. Um, it's uh, it's just really. Uh, she says, "Face your life. It's pain. It's pleasure. Leave no path untaken." And uh, and uh, he says, "It's a it's a difficult challenge, but I'll try my best." He says, "I'm going to go see the world. I'm going to get into trouble. Get out of trouble again. Visit jungles and volcanoes and deserts and islands and people. I want to meet an awful lot of people." And she says, "I'm so proud of you." And then he just sort of walks off into the world with his eyes and his heart wide open. And Gaiman says. Sort of the tragedy and the most beautiful thing about being a parent is that if you do your job correctly, then at some point your children will no longer need you. And and that's the that's the point that Bod has has reached is that he doesn't need the ghosts in the graveyard anymore. He they did their job and they did it well. They raised a good they raised a good man and he's gonna go off into the world. So really, really good book good book. Good stuff. Yeah, um, I love Bod's relationship with Mr. And Mrs. Owens, and I love Mr. And Mrs. Owens' relationships with one another, one another. But I also really like his relationship with Miss Lupescu and with Silas, like you said, all these parental figures that he has his life in his life. You see the influence that Bod is having on these parent figures. That um, they're not just—I mean, it sounds like almost cliche to say, you know—that they're not just teaching him; he's teaching them. But it is going both ways. The um, they're shaping him, as you said, into a good person, a person who will do things like go and try and help someone just because uh, they they wanted a headstone and they never got one. A person who will learn the respectful ways to communicate with anyone from any, any era. I love that he has to learn different ways of, of introducing himself, yes. uh, depending on when, when people had died, because the, the ghosts are kind of stuck in their ways. Um, they, they raised someone who's, who's good, but I think they all became better people because of him. Uh, Miss Lupescu dies uh, near the end. Uh, I, th- I think it's off. I mean, I know, I guess uh, Silas knows it happens and he tells Bod about it. Um, but she, she changed her opinions. Uh, she changed the way that she treated him um, because of her experience uh, in those months that she was, she was kind of his charge. And, and Silas um, certainly is, it, you get the sense that he's doing things he never would have done uh, if Bod had not come into his life. So I, I enjoyed seeing that kind of parent-child relationship form in all of those senses. I'm a little bit surprised that the conversation turned to the parent relationship so easily because I'd never once noticed it really. 
in in reading it until I looked at the last page, and it's the last line of dialogue in the book, and it says, he thought a voice said, I'm so proud of you, my son, but he might perhaps have, have imagined it. And it's sort of implied that it's Mrs. Owens saying it because she's the last one he interacted with, but it's as he's stepping out of the graveyard, which is a place she cannot speak to him, like once he's out of the graveyard. And so in a way, I think it could be almost anyone who's been one of those parent figures. It could be either of the Owenses, or it could be Silas, or it could be Miss Lupescu. Because even though she was killed, this is the graveyard book. <laughs> That's right. And and I also think it it could be, in some way, the the parents he never knew. Yeah, his original parents. Yeah. Who had a, a brief interaction at the beginning as ghosts, where they sort of let him be adopted into the graveyard. I want to talk a little about the the ghoul episode with Miss Lupescu. Sure. I think this is, uh, as far as his coming of age, I think this is important because uh, he is um, like eight-ish and he's, you can tell he's starting to be a little full of himself. He's overconfident in his abilities. He gives Miss Lupescu um, kind of the attitude of, you know, I already know all the things you're trying to teach me. <laughs> And she, you know, she is trying to drill into him. You need to know these things that are, that I'm teaching you. And we, we see very clearly illustrated in what happens that he is not as competent as he believes himself to be. And I would imagine Todd, that you had a few moments in your life where you became starkly aware <laughs> that <laughs> you were not as prepared, uh, or as all knowing as maybe you had convinced yourself you were. I yeah. remember it happening in, yeah, I mean, I never got dragged down into a ghoul gate. <laughs> Thank goodness. I certainly remember it happening in some classrooms, which is probably the best place for that to happen, where where you kind of become uh, instantly familiar with how how little you you know on a subject that you think you know a lot about. And uh, having it happen to to Bod when he's eight years old, I think is is key for his development, where it kind of it humbles him from then on out to to realize that he does still need these authority figures around him who are doing more than just drilling knowledge into him over and over. They're, they're preparing him and they're protecting him. Yeah. I really, I really like the, the, the ghoul story. Um, I like that. Um, one of the thing, I mean, the thing that saves Bod is that there are these, what are they called? Night? What are they called? The night hawks, night gaunts, night, the night gaunts. Right. So one of the things, she tells him, Miss um, Lopescu teaches him how to um, ask for help in all these different languages, and one of them is in Night Gaunt. And he's, and he's, he's like resisting this. He's like, this is a waste of my time. <laughs> this is the stupidest thing I have ever heard in my life. When am I ever going to need to ask for help in Night Gaunt? And it turns out that the Night Gaunts live in the world of the ghouls. And, um, and he sees them and he recognizes what they are and he calls out for help. And they're the ones that are able to go back and let Miss Lupescu know that, um, that he needs saving. Um, and so I, I think we learned a couple of interesting things about Bod. Uh, one is that, um, even though like, yes, he has hubris and yes, he's, he's probably a little too big for his britches. He paid enough attention uh, to the lessons, even before, even when he was being kind of a stinker, he wasn't like a complete uh, waste of space, right? I mean, he was he was he was not nice to her, and he didn't like the food that she brought to him. Uh, but even then, Bod's a good kid. Like, there's never a point in here where Bod is not a really good, like a, a very good child. 
Yeah, he'd be a um, bit churlish at times, but he's not like one of the punks at school that he has to go teach lessons. No, he's a good. He is a he is a good, like a good person who really tries to do what's right, kind of really throughout the novel. And um, his methods are sometimes not not the best, even though they kind of are the best. (laughs) But um, (laughs) they are effective. Yeah, definitely effective. Uh, But I really like that. I don't know. I I mean, it could have been. It could have been something like uh, I don't know. Like I'm thinking of Pinocchio. There, there seems to be something of Pinocchio in this in this story. If you kind of squint your eyes and you know hold it arm's length away, <laughs> um, but Pinocchio. Like there are moments in uh, in Pinocchio where you're like, man, Pinocchio, you are a total twit, and and like <laughs> you are a horrible person, and you deserve to be dragged into you know the place and turned into a donkey, and Bod like. As much as he needs this lesson, it's not like, oh, you're a horrible person. You totally deserve this. It's just like, no. Um, even good people, even good boys, have to go through hard things and learn that, like, as good as they are, they they can be better. Yeah, so, I don't know. And, and he learn like he he recognizes the lesson as it's happening. <laughs> you know, it's not like he needs the moral of the story given to him uh, at the end because he is he is a quick learner, um, and he is. As a character, one thing that's so so interesting is, or I, I guess it's him as a character and also the way Neil Gaiman shows it in the story, is how much he learns from the people around him um, and that it's not, he's not self-absorbed. You know, it's not just his world, even though, you know, his life is tragic and very easily could become woe is me about that all. But as he's going around the graveyard, like he, he knows who everyone is. He knows things about them. He knows how he's supposed to interact with them. When he goes out in the world, he, he's observant. Uh, he's trying to learn what, you know, the, the live, how the living live. And, um, it's just really interesting also because there's even a couple moments where you find out he's kind of a celebrity in the ghost world. Yeah. Um, when when he's out uh, going to school, he, he ducks into another graveyard at one point. Um, and they're like, Oh, it's the, it's the living boy from down, you know, from, from the graveyard at the <laughs> center the of other, town, from the big graveyard. <laughs> yes. Um, but it, you know, it doesn't go to his head. Like I said, he, he's, he's a good kid. He's not, he's not perfect. Um, and his, his desire to learn is one of the things that defines him, I think, and not just his desire, but his willingness to put in the work to learn. Uh, even when he's eight years old and he's kind of a punk <laughs> to his teacher, uh, he, he does take in the knowledge that he needs. What about uh, his relationship with Liza Hempstock? Hempstock? No, I was just—I really like it. Um, I pictured her a tiny bit older than you had. You said like fifteen, sixteen, and I pictured her a little bit older than that, but not much. Yeah, but I don't think it makes a huge. I don't think it makes a huge difference one way or the other. Um, I really like his relationship with her. She's everybody says don't go down there. She's a witch. She was she was buried in unhallowed ground, and he's like, you know what? I want to know every inch of this place, and I'm going to go meet her. Uh, or, or he goes. He's kind of curious to go down there. He falls out of an apple tree, gets hurt, and she comes and helps him. And and then he finds he's like, oh, are you the witch? And she's like, yep, I am. And he's like, oh. You're kind of nice. Like, I really want to get you a headstone. You seem like a very nice person, and you haven't smiled for a long time. And I mean, it's it's got to be sad to be a, a witch buried in unhallowed ground, and none of the other ghosts want to talk to you. 
And I like that um, he first meets her when he's like 11 or 12, and you can tell he's kind of attracted to her, but he doesn't quite yeah. understand what all that attraction means. <laughs> um, and she's, even if she's 15, 16, 17, whatever the age is in there, she's clearly too old for him, and she kind of knows that this attraction is there, and she's a little bit flirtatious, but, you know, in a, in a coy way about right, it all. But when but, he gets older, you, when can, he gets older, you can tell that, you tell that she's she kind of miffed. likes him. Yeah, and she's, yeah. she's sad that he's leaving. She's, she's kind of angry at him. <laughs> and she kind of... <laughs> I think, I, I, again, it's a couple months ago. Isn't there a line where she kind of implies, you know, if you were to die and be a ghost, you could hang out with me yeah. for eternity. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. I love it when, when he tries to run away and she comes and, and talks to him. She says, we want you to surprise us and disappoint us and impress us and amaze us. Come home, bod. And uh, he says, I think, I think things, I said things to Silas, he'll be angry. She said, if he didn't care you, if he didn't care about you, you, you couldn't upset him. And like, there's a lot of wisdom there. I mean, for a 15 year old, 16 year old witch, <laughs> um, there's a lot of wisdom in, in that, that, that our children, and I, I, I mean, I don't know, I don't know if this is like a, going to be a sappy hippie, like parent podcast or something, <laughs> but, um, I think that children often think that they that their parents just want them to be um, totally awesome all the time, and that they they're supposed to be perfect. And if they're not, then they're a huge disappointment to their parents, and or uh, or that they somehow fail as children if they're not great. And um, and I I I I felt um, I identified with this sentiment that we want our children to surprise us and disappoint us and impress us and amaze us and just like be with us and be kids. And, and, uh, I think kids are sometimes really hard on themselves and, um, and they don't need, they don't need to be nearly as much as they are. Sometimes, sometimes they need to be harder on themselves. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, what you're saying, it reminds me of one of the, the earliest quotes in the book that stood out to me. Um, this is before, uh, or this is right after the man Jack has has killed the rest of the family. And now he's looking for the toddler, and this is your introduction to to Bod as a toddler. And the line is: "Ever since the child had learned to walk, he had been his mother's and father's despair and delight." Yeah. Um, and I, I like you're saying. I think that's you know that's what kids are like when they're when they're falling short of what their parents' hopes are. They're just you know they despair about them, you know, and they, and they want more for them and. Uh, but they also are the greatest delight. Um, I can't remember where I saw it, uh, but there was a comic that was, uh, it was somewhere online and it said it was a chart that was supposed to be like your, your emotional highs and lows. And it has one that's kind of like lots of peaks and valleys. And then there's this line of demarcation that says, uh, your first child. And then it becomes like harsh ups and downs. <laughs> <laughs> just, just everything is a spike and a valley. Whereas before it was kind of level slopes of your, your right. emotional highs and lows. But once you're a parent, your, your highs are so much higher, but also your lows can be your, your frustration level and your, uh, your sadness over, over choices that you see can, can take you down lower emotionally than anything that was happening in your own life. And that's a, the beautiful thing about this book is that it it's called the graveyard book and it's full of ghosts, um, but it really is a celebration of life and and life in all of its complexity and the good things and the bad things. It just doesn't matter, and that's what these ghosts keep telling Bod: like you are alive, you have you have infinite potential. You can do so many great like once you're dead, 
then that's it. Like if you die and, and the people in the, you can see in the graveyard, the ghosts, there are all different ages and, um, Bod will be, when he's a child, he's friends with the, with the, with the children who had died. And then he sort of grows into different friendships as he grows older and grows out of some others. But all of the people in the graveyard are stuck. And one of the things that they love about Bod, and this is what, um, Liza is saying is that he, they see in him so much potential and so much life. And, and, um, when he's with the ghouls, He's thinking about that the ghouls are. They want to take him to their ghoul city and turn him into a ghoul. Um, and part of that is that they'll erase all of his memories. And and he says, "I don't care if I die. Like if I if I get out of this this sack that they've that they've got me in, and I die eaten by some beast or something, that's fine. But at least I'll die knowing who I am and knowing the people the people that I love. Um, but." But there's this, there, I don't know, it just is this, this great celebration of life um, that I really, I really liked. And I think there's an interesting part of it that it's also a celebration of the lives of those in the graveyard, that, you know, that he knows. Um, like he, he's learning from all of them. And I think it's implied that the living are worse off for not knowing what the dead knew. Like we, we should be remembering more uh, about those who have come before us. We should be remembering more about their yeah. lives and the things they learned. Uh, and, um, there, you know, everything that we, we don't know enough, I guess, is part of, uh, what, what this book is telling us is that there's a lot more we could learn from those who've come before us than what we choose to, to learn. Um, in, in this, we already mentioned how much we enjoy Neil Gaiman's writing, uh, in this story. And there's a couple lines that I've marked in my book throughout, uh, things that just really popped out to me. One is after the dance macabre. Um, when Bod is, he's going to Silas, he's like, why won't anyone talk to, why don't the townspeople remember this dance? Why won't the ghosts talk to me about what, what just happened? Um, and Silas just says to him, because there are mysteries, because there are things that people are forbidden to speak about, because there are things they do not remember. Um, and that it seems to be so much of what Neil Gaiman is playing with is this idea of, of the mysteries and, um, you know, this, this space that's kind of forbidden and that's where, you know, Bod is living. Uh, that's what he's growing out of throughout this book into, into, you know, the regular world, but it's that magical kind of forbidden mysterious area, um, where, where Bod is living. That's so fascinating. And, and again, going back to that, the word you used haunting, that's so haunting about this book. Were there, uh, were there any phrases that popped out to you, Todd, as you were reading? Uh, yes, there are. Okay, so Bod says, um, this is towards the end, I want to see life. I want to hold it in my hands. I want to leave a footprint on the sand of a desert island. I want to play football with people. I want, he said, and then he paused and thought, I want everything. And uh, and this the, this goes in again into that, like, this celebration of life. Like, we are alive. <laughs> we are alive. And after reading this book, I think, I am alive, and that is pretty awesome, and I don't want to waste my life. And Liza tells him, life is wasted on the living, nobody owns. For one of us is too foolish to live, and it is not I. And then she says, you're just you're too stupid. <laughs> you're too stupid to live. Just go out and live your life. You are alive. I am dead. I am stuck in the same place forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And you are alive. Go. Don't be stupid. Go out and live. There's another line like that where he's talking to one of the other ghosts named Josiah Worthington. And he just, in a moment of frustration, he's like, but I'm one of you. He's like, I don't understand why I'm being kind of cut off from the ghost community because I'm one of you. And the response is, not yet, boy, not for a lifetime. <laughs> um, 
and, and it, it's subtle, but he's saying you need to go live your life. Like you need to have a lifetime. <laughs> you haven't had it yet. Um, this is all the prep work for, for you going and living and, and making a difference in this world. There's this great thing that Neil Gaiman does where, um, he has these moments of like kind of soaring poetic, I want to live and I want to leave a footprint in the desert sand. And they have other moments where like when, um, when, uh, Scarlet is, Scarlet's always mad at her mom because her mom hasn't given her a cell phone. And she's like the, you know, she's like, my mom would just give me a cell phone that I could call and not have to get a ride from this guy. And there's a moment where um, she's scared. She's super duper scared. She's scared of Mr. Frost and his friends. She's scared of the room and its memories. Um, she's even a little afraid of Bod. And she thought, I wonder what mom's thinking right now. She'll be phoning Mr. Frost's house over and over to find out when I'm going to get back. She thought, if I get out of this alive, I'm going to force her to get me a phone. It's ridiculous. I'm the only person in my year who doesn't have her own phone, practically. She thought, and then, so then you have, like, heartbreak, new paragraph. She thought, I miss my mama. And it's like, it's just such a, I don't know, I, I love um, how he kind of switches between registers. It's not all, I don't know, I, I can't, I have a hard time imagining, like, Sandra Cisneros, like, just sneaking in. <laughs> Darn my mom! You know, like, I mean, the, the the house on Mango Street, for as beautiful as it is, it's all written in essentially the same register. And Gaiman's kind of plays back and forth with this uh, this kind of soaring poetic prose, and then this very kind of um, mundane but but really delightful. Like these are real people with real thoughts. I guess this is a, a good time to mention there's a delightful video online of Neil Gaiman. He appeared on a radio show, and before he appeared, the radio show had sent out a call for listeners to send in bad Neil Gaiman writing, where they would try to imitate Neil Gaiman's style. <laughs> and then they had Neil Gaiman read these entries. Like He, he helped to pick the winners <laughs> who had uh, you know, just done uh, the best parody of his writing style. Uh, we'll have the link to that in our show notes, and it is definitely worth watching him re- read these. You cannot listen to him read some of these lines without without laughing. Um, the last one I wanted to share, the last bit of uh, writing that I really enjoyed, this one struck quite quite close to the mark <laughs> for me, and I'm guessing for you, Todd, as we're both um, academics who have been on the job market <laughs> and <laughs> tried to, to track down jobs here and there. Um, and this is the first description of Scarlett and her family. Scarlett was happy. She was a bright, lonely child whose mother worked for a distant university teaching people she never met face-to-face, grading English papers sent to her over the computer and sending <laughs> messages of advice or encouragement back. Her father taught particle physics, but there were, Scarlett told Bod, too many people who wanted to teach particle physics and not enough people who wanted to learn it. So Scarlett's family had to keep moving to different university towans. And in each town, her father would hope for a permanent teaching position that never came. <laughs> and uh, when I was reading that, my, my wife uh, also has a PhD and we've, we've bounced around a couple different university towns in our day. And uh, when I was reading this, I, I stopped and read that one to her and she just said, too soon. <laughs> too soon for that one to be <laughs> to be funny yes no it's good uh do you have any final thoughts about the graveyard book uh no i just highly recommend anyone who's looking for a, a pleasant uh read uh it's it's a children's book but i recently saw it listed on a someone had done a list uh, a post of uh, children's books that every adult should read, and this one was on the list. And, yeah, uh, I would put it. I would put it on there also. This is certainly for, like, I don't know, 
if you if you have read maybe children's literature in the past or like some children's literature and thought, oh, that was so, if you read The Wrinkle in Time and you're like, oh, I wish I could read something that was that good again. And then you go and you've, I mean, there are, is a lot of literature, children's literature, even young adult literature that is not nearly this good. <laughs> um, and uh, this is, yeah, this is high up on the high up on the list. I highly recommend it. it makes you want to live. Makes you want to take advantage of life, and that's that's pretty great. Yeah, I would uh, compare this favorably to to Harry Potter, but it is in the whole lifetime of Harry Potter in one novel. <laughs> yeah, probably... and you and the other thing about this is that you're not committing to a whole a huge seven book series or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. it's three hundred pages, and you could read it. Uh, well, you could read it in a whole <laughs> afternoon, like I did, <laughs> but, but I would recommend spacing it out over a few. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that's going to wrap up this episode. Thanks for joining us. Remember, you can subscribe to The Protagonist in iTunes, uh, Protagonist Podcast in iTunes. We would also encourage you to leave a review there if you would like what, if you like what you hear. Please leave a review. We are stuck on three. We would like to clear five <laughs> some, at some point. Uh, so please take a moment and go leave us a review. Um, it really will help us out and help uh, other people to be able to discover The Protagonist Podcast. Um, it, you can find links to everything that we've talked about in this episode, along with a list of all of our shows at protagonistpodcast.com. And if you want to suggest a character for us to talk about or provide some comments that we'll probably address in a future listener feedback episode, you can send us an email at uh, feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. Or you can find us all on Twitter uh, at protagonistpod or at Todd K. Mack at, or at Jay Dorowski and our producer Andrew is at Andrew underscore Dorowski and you can find the spelling for Dorowski at protagonistpodcast.com <laughs> also please like our Facebook page um, we switched over from a uh, what was it a group page to just a fan page so it's easier to find it you don't have to join it you can just go hit a like button and you'll see any posts that we do about uh, the episodes that we've that we're dropping in uh, we love any comments corrections or any interaction at all thanks again for listening and we'll be back next week to talk about a great character and a great story so long There's red flashing lights everywhere from my window. Um, no sirens, though. We okay. can't hear the red flashing lights. So you're okay. <laughs>